0: Their advanced eye care duo brightens, awakens, and firms the skin around your eyes, while the golden glow body trio nourishes and smooths the skin all over. Both sets are packaged in giftable boxes. They're so beautiful you can skip the wrapping. And the best part? For a limited time, you can save up to $46 on Osea's sets. Plus, get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. This Mother's Day, get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at malibu.com. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off site-wide. Well, ladies and gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention... Sir? Greetings dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of a Remnant Podcast brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, give us some reviews, spread the word, do nice things, pay it forward, yada yada yada. Um, it's already a long day and it's just nine o'clock. Um, I had to do a uh, early hit on CNN in the 7 a.m. hour and uh, about the gun decision from the Supreme Court. And it meant I had to walk the dogs um, uh, w- much earlier than seven. And, um, and Pippa was being a pain. I know people don't like to hear that, but um, she just had very strong feelings about where to walk and when and how. And um, anyway, uh, hit went fine you know, whatever. Um, of course I get back from, uh, makeup and there's John Dean, uh, sitting in the green room. And, uh, this is like, it's not a big deal. It's sort of, this is the life I have chosen, but like, uh, it's one of the things that's, it's uncomfortable about Washington is you pick fights with people, you have strong disagreements with people, and then you're likely to actually see them in various settings that, um, require good manners and i mean the the and it's just it's just awkward particularly for someone who you know doesn't love talking to the human beings that much in general um and if you don't understand why that was awkward uh on wednesday i wrote a a g-file about how john dean has um sort of gotten away with um rehabilitating his reputation based upon, at the very best, dubious interpretations of his role in Watergate. And, you know, there's this, I, I, I got set off on it because uh, Joe Scarborough, who was making a perfectly fine point about the January 6th hearings, um, said it was when he watched Raffensperger and Bowers and, and Sterling testify he made this sort of strain comparison to the Watergate hearings as if like these three guys were like John Dean. And the problem with that analogy, as I wrote about is that, that John Dean was part of Watergate. He was one of the bad guys. He committed the crimes. Um, there's a debate um, in my, you know, there's a debate about whether or not he literally like orchestrated them, like whether he was a ringleader or whether he was, as he claims, just sort of, seduced by what he called blind ambition and, and, and lost his better judgment. But either way, uh, I'm more on the side that he has dissembled and deceived about the full extent of his role in Watergate and in the cover up. Um, but even if you take his version of it, when the president did something very bad, John Dean went along, right? He was a participant and the whole point of Raffensburger and Rusty Bowers, the Arizona, the secretary of state and Gabe Sterling is that when they were put to the test in the moment when it mattered, uh, they did the right thing. And, um, there has been this rehabilitation effort with John Dean led by John Dean, largely by John Dean, um, where he is used as this sort of great moral truth teller. And he gets called a whistleblower when, you know, I mean, look. I mean, the, the precise definition of whistleblower is is open for debate, but normally the way the press uses whistleblower is like some moral agent who has a moral conscience-driven objection to something that is going on, and tells the world about it at great cost. And John Dean came clean because he struck a deal to uh, become a state's witness, or essentially a prosecution witness in Watergate. And that got his sentence to jail reduced. He still went to jail for the stuff that he did during Watergate. And, and a lot of the prosecutors at the time um, believe that he was never fully honest about the full extent of his role. And so, like, that's my only point. It, it's bothered me for years the way he is, he trots himself out this way, um, and the way he sort of, every time there's a Republican scandal, he always says, this is worse than Watergate, or this might be worse than Watergate. Um, um, And no one ever bothers to, like, take two seconds to say, well, don't you have a vested interest in saying these things you weren't involved in were worse than the thing that you were involved in? Um, And I'm not saying, like, I don't, I I definitely think Trump's effort to steal the election was worse than Watergate. um, But, like, I don't go to John Dean for that determination. I don't go to bank robbers to say who say, you know, that bank robbery was much worse than the bank robbery I was involved in. Um, and you know, he's just one of these guys, you know, that is used by sort of liberal TV bookers, op-ed editors, um, as a cudgel against the right, um, without, um, ever having any, you know, it's like, it's a, it, you know, it's an old story. And then obviously the right does this kind of stuff too. Um, but the right doesn't control the vast apparatus of the mainstream media the way um, the, the way liberals do. And so, you know, Valerie Plain, you know, and all these other people get, get to be taken up as, as, you know, heroic martyr figures for liberal causes just get away with a lot of shenanigans that bothers me. And I think John Dean is sort of the Dean of shenanigan, get away withers. it, it what, get away withers, whatever. Um, I don't want to talk about John Dean anymore. Um, I didn't even want to talk about John Dean in the, the newsletter. I just was vexed. Um, so about the gun decision, the Bruin decision, I'm torn about it. You know, um, I, I think within the four corners of the decision it's entirely rational and justifiable. Um, uh, you know, basically it's much less of a big deal than people make it out to be because basically as I understand it is that, you know, this leaves as constitutionally okay, the way 43 other States do their gun permitting, you know, and, um, and some of those 43 states are very blue states. And, um, the difference is, and again, I find this persuasive is that if, if like, and part of the problem is look, if, if you believe that Heller was correct, or if you believe just basically that you have a, um, right to bear arms in this country, if you don't believe that there's a whole other decision tree that you get, you know, but if you do believe it, right, which the, the, uh, the six justices who voted f- this way on the Supreme court, they do believe it, right? So you have to work within the logic of, of their base base assumptions, right? It's sort of like a logical proof. And one of the givens is that you have a constitutional right to bear arms. And yeah, Biden's right. No constitutional right is absolute. And the Supreme court has, doesn't say that they're absolute. Um, so if you think, if you take that as a given, then this idea that the way New York uh, handled gun permitting was constitutional is just really, really flawed. Uh, you know, the the way the state of New York did it was, you had to prove to some bureaucrat on a who had sort of arbitrary authority to say yay or nay that you had a justifiable need for a gun or a gun permit. And, um, I think that sort of formulation tricks a lot of people's brains because there are a lot of people who say, why do you need a gun? You know? And like, I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. If, if you know, my daughter said I want to get a gun, well, why do you need a gun? You know? And then we'd have a conversation about why you need a gun. But if you look at it within the context of constitutional rights, we don't ask that about any other constitutional right. We don't say, um, you know, why do you need to worship God that way? We don't say, why do you need to write an op-ed criticizing the governor of New York? Um, that would be prior restraint, right? We don't say, why do you need to hang out with those people um, to get permission the government doesn't say why do you need to do these things um, for the citizens to get permission. So this idea that you need to prove that you have a justifiable um, reason to want to defend yourself with a firearm just it makes. I think Thomas is absolutely right. It makes the Second Amendment or the right to care, you know, right to self-defense a second-class right. And if you're going to work within the logic of uh, that is that flows from how we talk about rights in this country. The, the the decision makes complete sense. You know, what, what the decision, what this Bruin decision does is it says the state has to prove a good reason for why they can deny someone a gun rather than the citizen prove why they need one. And the onus should always be on the state when it comes to the exercise, you know, it should be up to the state to prove that it has a compelling reason to restrict a constitutional right. It shouldn't be up to the citizen to say, uh, to prove why they should be able to exercise a constitutional right. And so I find that pretty persuasive. Um, that said, like, uh, you know, George will has a good column on this. Um, I don't, I'm not necessarily persuaded by it, but it's, it, it's, it's a pretty inconvenient fact that, you know, for over two centuries, no one really noticed this individual I shouldn't say no one really noticed. People have been arguing about this for a very long time, but that the courts did not recognize until fairly recently, the individual right to bear arms, um, and that there were all sorts of localities that had pretty onerous restrictions on guns. Um, some of those I, as I gather it, again, I'm not a huge gun guy. But as I gather some of those restrictions, you know, the sort of Johnny Cash, don't take your guns to town kind of stuff where sheriffs didn't let anyone bring guns to town. Some of those restrictions would not pass constitutional muster today. OK, and that's fine with me. There are lots of things that we got that that people got away with that were unconstitutional, but just were never properly challenged and never worked their way through the courts. The, the fact that that can happen does not bother me too much. But when you put a lot of emphasis on history, and tradition, I think taking that kind of thing into account is, is legitimate. Um, and it also just doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to me to be a wild eyed radical position to say that in certain jurisdictions, having, um, firearms is just not a great, concealed firearms is just not a great idea. Um, I'm not saying that that view is always right. I'm just saying it's not necessarily always wrong or unreasonable. And, um, but still the decision does not say that you have an unfettered right, um, to carry a concealed weapon. Um, states can still impose, uh, categorical restrictions on gun ownership, You know, uh, minors can't have handguns. That's been on the books for a very long time. Um, uh, felons in most jurisdictions can't have handguns. Uh, you could probably come up with some other, uh, categories or classes of people that should have to jump through extra hoops or just simply not be allowed to to have handguns. All it's saying is, is that you can't have some bureaucrat just make a decision that says it's okay for Rosie O'Donnell to have a handgun, but it's not okay for the night manager of a 7-Eleven who's got to carry the deposits to the bank at night to have a handgun. That's not a decision for a bureaucrat to make. And I, anyway, I, I know this is an annoyingly even-handed take on it, but that's how I come down on it. Um, or at least that's how I'm thinking about it. I am sure that Charlie Cook will wag his finger at me about some of this and explain to me why Um, I should be dancing on the ceiling about all of it and that's fine too. So, um, I watched the January 6th. Oh, I should back up and start. I should have started with the lighthearted stuff from the beginning. I'm sorry. I was just at, you know, CNN and was on my mind. Um, um, I got back from Alaska. Yes, I was there for a very short time. Yes, it was a silly amount of distance to travel, uh, to, for such a short period uh, to stay there. And I wish it could have been otherwise. Um, it was always planned to be a fairly short trip, but then it got cut even shorter because of, uh, you know, airplane hell stuff, which caused me to miss the Friday G file last week for which I apologize. Um, but it was great to be up there. I do really, really resent that I missed apparently the last two glorious summer days in Washington, DC that we'll probably see all summer. Um, um, I guess part of the joy of being in Alaska is the schadenfreude of knowing that people are suffering back at home, um, with the DC, um, you know, uh, sweat pant ball fog weather. Um, and, uh, uh, and yes, I actually finished the midnight sun run, um, midnight sun fun run, midnight sun run, midnight, sun run, midnight fun sun run. Anyway, the, the, the 10 K in Fairbanks. When I was last up there in 2019, I remember I came back and I joked at the beginning of the podcast that, uh, cause it, you know, the la- last one was in 2019 cause of COVID. I joked at the beginning of the remnant that, you know, I just got back from Alaska where I, I just completed my first, uh, 5k because I stopped running the 10k halfway through and running is a generous word to begin with. Um, I just, I, and I didn't give up because I was exhausted or was broken down. I gave up because everybody else in my group who said that they were going to uh, sort of just power walk it in 2019 either gave up before me or um, lied and just started to run. I just didn't want to keep people waiting at the finish line. But uh, this year, I just figured, all right, I'm going to finish this damn thing. And I did. And it was fun. The, I got to say, if you're into running, um, uh, for, I don't really understand why, but you know, whatever, teach their own. Um, uh, uh, sorry, I messed up that story. The point I was going to make about it was I got on the podcast and I say, I just completed my first 5K. Jack Butler jumped all over me and says, No, 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 no. I've been looking all over the results and you did not finish. And I said, I know you didn't listen to what I said. I said, I just completed my first 5K because I did half of the 10K. Um, anyway, this year I did the whole 10K it It's great fun. It really is. the The sort of Fairbanks community really kind of rallies around it. You go through these these little neighborhoods where everyone where people are just out in their front yards and in beach chairs and they're tailgating and some people set up, you know, uh, some bands play, um, and other people put out music. And if you go back to my well I, we'll put a link to um, some of the stuff I posted. I was posting sort of pictures and video from, uh, from the race, but since the thing starts at 10 o'clock at night, which is 2 a.m. on the East coast, I think a lot of people missed it. And, uh, um, but it just, it's, it's, it's great fun. And, and the weird, the weirder parts of Fairbanks sort of come out in force. And, um, and for you don't, for those of you who haven't put it together, the reason why it's called the midnight sun run is that, The race is officially from 10 to midnight, um, though the real runners usually finish it in about 45 to 45 minutes or so. Um, I think the winning time was like 33 minutes or something, which is just nuts to me. Um, But then again, I don't run. And, uh, um, but it's just, it's kind of, it's just kind of wild about how it's just light out at 10 o'clock at night. Um, And it's light out, at 12 o'clock at night. This is all, you know, it's time to coincide with the summer solstice. So it's the longest day of the year. And basically the sun just doesn't go down. Um, it technically, I think it kind of dips below the horizon a bit for a little while, but then it pops right back up, you know, not, not very much long later. Um, and that's one of the things I, I, I'm sure I've talked about this before that I really, really like about Alaska is that Alaska reminds you, that you're on a planet. And what I mean by that is, that look, I think everybody, um, you know, intellectual I shouldn't say everybody, uh, Lynn Wood thinks it's a flat Earth, but uh, uh, most people, the vast majority of people understand we're on a planet and all that. But if you grew up with like normal seasons or whatever, um, or even just the normal interplay of uh, darkness and light that you get from normal days, uh, you kind of just assume that that's the way it works on earth, right? I mean, I, like I understand that you don't get seasons in, in you know, near the equator the way you get seasons in say Maine, um, but you still get seasons, right? And you still get, you, 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 the patterns are kind of normal and just the patterns up in, in Alaska are just so different um, that you know, it kind of reminds you that we're on this, you know, this spinning ball in space and, um, and it's just really freaky to, you know, wake up at two in the morning and think it's 7 a.m. because the light's peeking out through the curtains and it can kind of mess you up and the darkness thing can mess you up too. Um, anyway, I'll talk more about, I'm sure I'll talk more about Alaska um, again, because again, as I've said, the fair Jessica is going to be coming on the remnant at some point soon. Uh, but anyway, it was a good time and, and went out to the lake and um, saw all the relatives and, and the fair Jessica interviewed a whole bunch of her family for this book that she's working on about her dad and um, just the flying out and flying back is just brutal. Um, all right. So what to talk about? Um. All right. So back to the January 6th thing. Um, Um, I found the, you know, part of the problem with watching these things is that it's, you know, the complaint that there's not a lot of news to it, which we've talked about before, I think is right. It's there. It's we've heard people who paid attention have heard a lot of this stuff. And, um, um, but that's sort of not the point of the thing. The point of the thing is the sort of construct. The narrative um, about what act, about what important things actually happened, um, and that I think still makes it very compelling, particularly when you hear it straight from the witnesses. And you know, as far as I can tell, all of the witnesses—maybe I'm missing somebody—but all of the witnesses, save two, the two um, really compelling African American ladies from 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 Atlanta, um, all of them have been conservatives. And most of them have been like Trump voting Republicans. And, um, I think that's fairly compelling, um, as well, or at least it, it should be. Anyway, the thing I thought was sort of, you know, most ironic about the Thursday hearings where they ran through the, all the DOJ stuff is, um, it was just sort of amazing to have Donald Trump supposedly argue, you know, and push, you know, that Italian satellites in collusion with MI5 and uh, um, I don't know, the egg council or whoever were flipping votes in the, in, in, in the United States. Um, and all of these other just, you know, bat guano crazy theories. And at one point Trump says, I don't, says to like me, you know, the leadership of the Department of Justice who have had people actually run down all of these allegations and come up with uh, no serious evidence that any of them have any merit to them whatsoever. And, you know, and Trump's argument is, I don't think you people are paying attention to the internet the way I am, or, or words to that effect. And that's true. They weren't paying attention to the internet the way that he was and you know and again i could go on for quite a while about you know trump's narcissism that anything that he reads anywhere that is either praising of him or convenient to the case that he wants to make he thinks must be true or that people should treat it as true um but to me the sort of the real irony of it is is that we spent 5 years and there's still and it still goes on where we hear about how you know the new york times and the washington post and cnn and msnbc and nbc and cbs um, and every other newsletter out there, including places like National Review, are fake news whenever they, you know, uh, report or um, comment on facts that are inconvenient to Trump. And the funny thing is, is, is that like the the only place that was consistently getting Trump's back um, on these bogus allegations were literally fake news places, not fake news as a pejorative that you use against places whose coverage you don't like, but l- literally places that were making up fake news. Like even when the mainstream media gets stuff wrong and it gets stuff wrong a lot. Don't get me wrong. Um, it's not willfully fake. It's just a screw up for the most part. Um, you know, I mean, like the Dan Rather memo gate thing. That's that's closer to deliberate fake news you know, and every now and then the, you know, like the tailwind thing or, um, what was it? Jeanette, I can't remember her name, but the woman who at the post who had to give back her Pulitzer because she lied about the kid and the heroin. Yeah. There are examples of individuals literally making stuff up, but when they do that, they get fired, right? The place gets sued. Um, the stuff, the places that, that Trump was paying attention to were like you know the most credible of them was like gateway pundit um and gateway pundit just you know that Jim Hof guy lies he makes stuff up um and you know some of it was even crazier like the video talking about the italian government and whatnot and it's just it's one of these sort of just bizarre ironies of the age that we're in is that the, the people screaming fake news the most are the ones most reliant on literally fake news um Anyway, I'm sorry. If if I seem particularly out of it today, it's only because I'm particularly out of it today. The the jet lag thing still has me messed up and my whole rhythm was messed up by the CNN thing today. I don't think I'm shocking anybody when I confess that I'm not a philosopher. Um, I like philosophy. I don't read a lot of philosophy anymore. Um, When I was younger, I used to be really into it. When I say really into it, I don't mean really into it to the point where like, I might've become a philosopher, um, or a philosophy professor or, or anything like that. I just mean like I was like really into it as an amateur and, um, and then later when I got really into conservatism, I got into the arguments about conservative philosophy and, you know, and things spread out from there. And then when I wrote my first book, I got really into, um, sort of the philosophies that led to progressivism. And so I'm a dabbler. And I, 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 there are places where my knowledge is, is, I wouldn't say super deep, but it's, you know, I'm fairly confident. I know what I'm talking about. And then there are places where I'm just a total blank spot. And, uh, and, but one of the things I like to do is I listen to on occasion, this podcast called philosophy bites, um, that, you know, the episodes are kind of hit and miss, but Um, some of them are really, really good and really, really helpful for me to sort of remind me, um, about some things that I used to be, I used to have a better, firmer grasp on. And, um, yesterday while walking dogs, I actually listened to Peter Singer on consequentialism, which I thought was, uh, uh, edifying. Uh, I'm not a huge Peter Singer guy. Um, for those of you who don't remember, Peter Singer is the animal rights ethicist, the the the, the, he's the he now calls himself a um, he, he, he used the phrase and I'm blanking it, but it's something like a, a hedonistic utilitarian and he recently changed his mind to become a hedonistic utilitarian from some other kind of utilitarian and hes hes said it in part because he and some other person had wrote, written a book. Um, about this guy Sidgwick, who's like the third of the three big 19th century, um, uh, utilitarians, the first one being Bentham and I guess the second one being Mill and, um, and so the hedonistic consequential hedonist utilitarian basically argues for whatever creates, um, pleasurable states of consciousness is correct and whatever creates unple- non-pleasurable states of consciousness is incorrect oh that's right he used to call himself a preference utilitarian which meant giving people their preferences was um the best form of political organization or social organization and um what's interesting to me about and I'm not I'm not going to get deep into singer because that's man, it's a rabbit hole. I've written a lot about him, but what I think is sort of fascinating about his explanation of consequentialism is that to his credit, um, he doesn't hide behind all sorts of BS jargon that usually serves as this, uh, impenetrable barrier against nonsensical ideas. You know, if you listen to the, if you read like the, her, hermeneuticists, um, or various flavors of Marxists, you know, they will hide behind, um, sort of these lexicological Gnostic walls of opaqueness that make it very difficult to actually engage with them because, uh, to try to engage with them on their own terms means you have to master their terms. And the second you get one of their terms wrong, they say, haha ha, you don't know what you're talking about. And to that extent, I like that Singer comes much more into the tradition of pragmatism, not John Dewey's pragmatism, because John Dewey was one of the worst writers ever, but like William James, where he, like, he, he believes in writing and speaking clearly about what he means, shorn of a lot of the ridiculous ornamentation that, that either uh, buys authority on the cheap or um, protects people from um, serious engagement. That said... I think it's garbage. <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, it, I, I, I want to give him credit. It's sincerely held. He's clearly confronted all of the counter arguments and all that. And, and again, this was only like, I don't know, a half hour long thing, but you can just tell that, you know, he's heard these things before. He is probably the world's most famous philosopher, living philosopher, I should say. Um, and he's heard it all before and I get it. And that's, that's, that's fine. But like he, he, you know, and he says, I don't have, and again, I don't have any of this stuff to in front of me. So if I misquote him slightly, I apologize. Um, people can listen to it over philosophy bites, just Google that and it'll come up. Um, but he basically gave a very straightforward, um, explanation of what consequentialism is. Consequentialism is, um, the belief that the rightness of a decision is based entirely in it on its consequences and so if it has good consequences it's a good decision if it has bad consequences it's a bad decision and you know there are hypotheticals where you know you know is it okay to lie and you have a hypothetical where um, if there's somebody determined to murder someone and they ask you a friend of yours and the would-be murderer comes to your house and says, where's Joe, um, is lying to him, is lying to the person who wants to murder Joe. Okay. And I think most people, even people who are much more committed to the proposition that lying is wrong, um, would say, yeah, it's fine to lie to him. Right. I mean, like, like there's a trade-off here and the lesser of two evils is way lesser than the other evil um so it's okay to lie and i agree with that um so i'm not saying that like consequentialists cannot come up with arguments um or scenarios in which they're absolutely right that the rightness of an action or a decision is uh contingent upon the consequences of the decision um, and we we've you think for 5 seconds on this and you can come up with all sorts of hypotheticals or real life occasions where you understand that to be true you don't have to go to a full ticking time bomb scenario or anything like that um you know you can just think of you know uh you know white lies that you maybe told to people to be polite if you visit you know someone in bed in a the, in the hospital bed and they're in despair um, and you give them a slightly rosier prognosis, um, depending on the circumstances, you know, it's, it, that's, it's totally understandable, right? Whether it's right or wrong, you know, given the person's personality or whatever is another matter. But I don't think anyone would begrudge you that, you know, there are times when those kinds of white lies are, are, um, perfectly acceptable. There are times when violence is acceptable based on the consequences. So again, I'm not disputing any of that. But the problem is, and he seemed to acknowledge some of this, Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say seemed to, he acknowledged some of this. Part of the problem, the first problem with this is that if you think that the rightness of something is determined wholly by the consequences, it assumes you can know the consequences. It assumes that like you can predict what will happen if you bend the rules this way or that way. And, um, Singer's point is, yeah, that's, Singer concedes the point and says, yeah, that's true. But if you're talking about the morality of decision and the the interviewer brings up this story by, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, I think, who, you know, says, who uses the murderer at the door scenario I was just talking about. And it turns out that when the guy lied, uh, it actually sent the killer to exactly where a friend was and he got killed and the point that singer was making is that's a terrible and tragic mistake that the liar made but given that the liar did not have perfect knowledge when he told the lie um he still did the right thing in the moment and i'm open to that okay that's fine but here's the problem and this is why it has so much it, there's so much um overlap with pragmatism is that this consequentialist stuff um, gives too much personal agency and knowledge, even if you acknowledge a singer does that er people suffer from imperfect knowledge. Um, If you give people this free roving ability to make the calls on their own as a matter, I'm not talking about matter of law. I'm talking about as a matter of ethics and morality. If you tell people, you, you make the call in every you know circumstance based upon what the consequences are. Um, you, the whole system kind of breaks down and, and I'll, uh, let me see if I can explain what I mean by this. So first of all, there's an enormous amount of question begging here, right? Because it assumes that, um, the, we have a good idea of what the better of the consequences, what the best consequence would be of a decision. Um, and that's not always knowable. It's not, it's not even often knowable, right? There's a reason why people talk about do the right thing and let the chips fall where they may, because it's very difficult to game this stuff out. Um, and the part, but the larger problem is this question begging part, because if you're going to boil down your philosophy to the definition of rightness being the consequences of your decisions, you're basically talking about a secondary level of philosophy because you still haven't defined what um, the best consequence looks like. Right. And I'm sure singer would say, well, it has something to do with this, you know, this Benthamite hedonistic utilitarian or Sidgwickian um, hedonistic utilitarian stuff. But, Uh, that's almost impossible to know, you know, what will maximize positive, pleasurable states of consciousness around the world. And, um, and so the way I kind of think about it is kind of like game theory, where if you have a, you know, how to put this, if you have, um, well, let's put it in terms of suicide of the West, right? If you have uh, a liberal democracy where you tell everybody as a matter of ethics, right? As a matter of moral philosophy, that none of the rules really matter if you think the consequences of your actions will be better than those that the rules will determine. You know, if if if, if you as an individual can predict that your lie or your theft or even your murder um, will yield to yield greater result, greater levels of, of, uh, pleasurable states of consciousness. Um, then we're basically saying everybody gets to determine the morality of the situation that they are in. Um, as again, as a matter of ethics and, and, and why I keep emphasizing it's a matter of ethics is that, is that, you know, laws basically the way our criminal laws our civil laws work is that there is some ethical and moral foundation beneath them and that the laws emanate up from the those more fundamental moral and ethical assumptions about how the world works and so it's better to just talk about the ethics and the morals first because if you can establish that the ethics and the morals are flawed the idea that you would then build a system of law based on them kind of becomes moot right and um and so if you're going to tell people that you know you get to decide the morality of the decision um based upon what you think the consequences are going to be part of the problem is is that human beings really, really, really love to come up with principled arguments that just happen to confirm their self-interest. Uh, we do not have to go deep into the weeds of, of psychology and public choice theory, um, or even you know, the political science that the Founding Fathers relied upon to create um, checks and balances that balanced faction against faction. This is just something that people understand, right? Um, And if you're telling people that ethically and morally that um, you're in the right, if you think, if you just happen to think or guess or even believe or whatever, that the consequences of your decision um, will be the best possible consequences, you're basically telling everybody to do whatever they want. And, um, the reason why I, I figured I would talk about this, cause I, you know, I listen to this thing pretty often and I, I don't do the philosophy stuff very often. Um, um, is because it's such, it's, it's such a sort of perfect con- context setter for these January six hearings, because what Trump and all of his various minions were trying to do was, you know, what was it that Giuliani allegedly said? It said, we have lots of theories, we just can't find the evidence. Um, they were trying all over the place to get the consequences they wanted without um, the evidence or arguments required to make those consequences worthwhile. And the whole way that, like, a liberal democracy works is, and the rule of law works, is that you have to respect the law or the rules, even when they are inconvenient to you. And, um, this sort of consequentialist thing, uh, which is very, again, very similar to pragmatism, which basically pragmatism, you know, as, um, um, Bertrand Russell wrote, and I, I know I've mentioned it a million times, i quoted it in a couple books, you know, he says the problem with pragmatism is that it reduces everything to questions of relative power, and in such a system, um, all questions of principle are ultimately settled by um, uh, maxim guns and ironclads, or something to that effect. And, and it seems to me it's the same thing with consequentialism. If the highest authority that you can appeal to is what you think, um, and you know, and what you want to think, um, will lead to the best possible outcome. Uh, then you really don't have to pay attention to the rules and, you know, in game theory, there are all sorts of things. There are all sorts of, you know, games, you know, including in the sense liberal democratic capitalism that, um, That produce better outcomes because everybody agrees to conform to the to the rules of essentially a social construct, right? That we have a civilization, and as a civilization, you can't always get what you want. And because people internalize that and they honor that, they get more than just what they need. And that society actually gets more prosperous. This is the, you know, this is the the consequentialism thing. Is a really a barbaric way of seeing the world. I mean, there's some altruism written into it because Singer, again, consistently and to his credit, actually does care about the betterment of other people. Um, which is not something I would rely upon. Um, that everybody who, if we can convince everybody to embrace, consequ- you know, utilitarian consequentialism, uh, the idea that uh, everyone would be as altruistic as Singer is, like he just got some big. Some sort of the Pulitzer uh, the Nobel of philosophy and he gave the money away, right? I mean, I think he is sincere in his desire to help the world, even if, if I think the public policies he prefers won't necessarily do what he thinks they'll do. I think he is sincere in all that kind of stuff. Um but if you just look at, you know, if you look at, you know, his views on infanticide and euthanasia, um, you can see how uh the normal moral safeguards to, uh, a system, a higher system of morality mean nothing, are are not constraining or persuasive to him. And, you know, but for most of human evolutionary history, the way people made decisions was, you know, is it good for me? Is the outcome of this you know, the outcome of this decision, is it right? Because it benefits me and mine, my family and my tribe. Um, and, uh, those kinds of decisions are just such wild, open-ended invitations to confirmation bias and self-interest. And, uh, you know, clearly, you know, you just think about how mon- how Kings and Emperors work, the whole reason why they fudged the distinction between what is good for the king and what is good for the nation is because they wanted the, because the king wanted to make decisions that, um, were determined to be right simply because they were good for him. And he could say, what's good for me is good for the nation. Uh, what's good for me, you know, the chieftain makes decisions that are good for him and he justifies it by saying it's good for the tribe. And sometimes he makes, you know, and sometimes those two things are compatible because what's good for the tribe might be good for the chieftain. What's good for the nation might be good for the king. But this idea that there are these clear delineations in their minds rather than uh, this sort of self-dealing permission structure that allowed them to do whatever they wanted to do and then find a pretextual or a post hoc rationalization for why they did it, grounded in the divine right of kings or, the, you know, what is... What is good for the father of the nation is good for the family of the nation, and yada yada yada. That's how people made decisions. That's how consequent, you know, that people were consequentialist for most of human history. And one of the great and glorious things about Judaism and Christianity is it pushed back on that. Is it it set up some laws and some moral frameworks that proved to be inconvenient in the moment right? I mean, Judaism is full of really inconvenient laws about what you can eat, what you can wear, when you can work, yada, yada, yada. Um, and that's because, you know, prior to um, monotheism, you know, gods were essentially our servants. They exacted at a high fee, you know, this many oxen, this many chickens, whatever. But the god of war, if you gave them enough sacrifices or the priests who claim to be their representatives, um, you you got, you know, the blessing for your war, or you blessing for your crops, or the blessing for your rain. You know, if you talk to the rain god or whatever, monotheism comes along and says, no, 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 gods aren't your service; they don't even exist. Um, there's one god, and um, you're you're his servant. And those the the moral constructs that come out of monotheism, Judaism, and, and then Christianity, um, and and look, and also Islam. Um, these things are inconvenient um, in the moment, right? Um, and by uh, but uh, but adhering to larger moral causes, larger moral laws, natural laws, outside of your immediate need turns turns out to be better for the society as a whole, and over time, better for the individual as well. And sending these decisions, back into every individual just strikes me as kind of nonsense. And you can see this revert reversion back to the state of nature and how Donald Trump handled his election laws. You know, he basically had contempt for the rules and he tried every way he could, given the limitations of what he was willing to risk, um, and given the limitations of how few serious people were willing to go along with him and do his will. Um, he tried everything he could to get what he wanted and work out the arguments for why he want. you know, why it was right later. He was a consequentialist. You know, that's why, you know, he famously said in that Washington Post interview when he was asked about how he whines, he says, Yeah, I whine. I whine until I win. Um, his whole definition of right and good as consequentialist does this benefit me um does this get me what i want and if it gets me what i want who cares if i have to lie who cares if i have to say that the italians were flipping votes um using their military satellites um the point is uh, i get what i want and the con- and so i will make whatever decisions i need to make um based upon the consequences that i like And it is always amazing to me the way, um, philosophers and ethicists of the pragmatic and utilitarian bent are, tend to be so solipsistic that they think, because this is the way they think, this is the way all people should think. This is the way, uh, moral, moral and ethical standards should be set. And it's, you know, we can get too bogged down in labels, but it's, to me, it ultimately is, you know, it's, it's all of those isms that conservatives, you know, tend to rant about. It's, it's nihilism, it's relativism, um, uh, it's narcissism, uh, and it's, it's folly. Um, you know, and I'm not going to get into my whole thing about how, um, you know, the, 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 most important, you know, philosophical debate of the 20th century was between Hayek and Dewey, even though they really didn't talk to each other. But this was what John Dewey, you know, essentially believed is that individuals could have sufficient knowledge that they didn't need to outsource, you know, in his case, individual experts could have sufficient knowledge and expertise that they could outsource, but they didn't, they didn't need to outsource decisions to general rules of applicability, that they could just know enough to make economic decisions, make political decisions that would work out right, right? This is like why Paul Krugman loved that that, that L. Ron Hubbard Foundation stuff about the psycho history. There is this arrogance of the intellect that you get with an enormous number of, um, for want of a better word, progressive philosophers and experts that thinks that, um, clear, simple rules for a complex society are stupid, um, whether they're moral rules, whether they're economic rules, whether they're political rules, and really what we need are the right experts. This is like, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, the astro guy, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? Uh, um, you know, this was, you know, he actually proposed that it'd be better to live in a world of rationalia where everybody just did what is, what is rational. And he seemed to think that what is rational is, um, not open to the interpretation that everybody can look at the same data and come to the same conclusions and, um, you know, that we can live in a, a uh, you know, a, a cult of expertise on everything. And, um, and this is, this is the, the sort of arrogance of intellect that you get from now two centuries of philosophers who, and not just philosophers, but economic planners, um, various intellectuals. And it's nuts and it's dangerous. Um, and you know, I'm one of these, this is why I'm at when you Strip it down to its foundations. This is the main reason I am. Or I'm always reluctant to say things like this is the main reason I'm a conservative, but it's really damn close to the main reason I am a conservative is that I don't think individuals can know enough to second guess certain um, moral rules all of the time, never mind second guess all sorts of economic rules all the time. Um, that the system works. Sometimes, the, uh, let me put it this way: sometime, you know, forget. I think we all can agree that a system where it said we're going to leave it up to each individual about whether or not it makes sense to murder someone would be bad, right? I think we can all understand that we can't have a system where each radical egalitarian, Benthamite, uh, utilitarian, hedonistic, whatever philosopher, um, gets to decide what the con, whether it's right to steal all the money from the cash register at the seven 11 is the right or wrong decision based upon what they think the consequences will be. We understand that at a very fundamental level, we got to outsource those kinds of decisions to the law, to simply the rule of law. Um, because society just simply breaks down. If we don't, I think we all understand that. And I think we also all understand that those laws have a really significant level of moral authority to them. You know, the laws against murder are moral laws. They are justifiable laws without, without, um, consultation with utilitarian philosophy. Um, they would be right even if all the smartest people said they were wrong. Um, the laws against stealing make a lot of sense morally, right? Um, but sometimes systems work better even when the the laws and the rules have no moral component to them, whatever. They simply have, you know, um, in my, in the most Burkinian line from Animal House sense, um, a long tradition of existence. Because institutions and expectations build up around them to the point where to change the law arbitrarily would sow such confusion um, that it makes no sense. And the example I often use is um, you know red lights and green lights. And it turns out I for a long time used to make this argument saying that red lights and green light, the decision to make red mean go and I mean, red mean stop and, and green mean go was arbitrary. It turns out it's not actually arbitrary. There's an interesting history to it. I've written about it before, but I can't do it justice right now. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it was arbitrary. At some point, when everybody counts on, when everybody knows that red means stop, even if you can make an argument that it would, for whatever reason, I don't know what it would be, that people see some other color better or that green is the better color for stop or whatever, Um. The simple fact that you have near universal knowledge and acceptance that red means stop changing it to green would be almost in the immoral act simply because in the years it would take for everyone or call it even days for everyone to get used to the new rule that green now means stop and red now means go for like 48 hours. At minimum, probably thousands of people would die, all right? Because people would be going through red lights, um, guns ablazing, and stopping at green lights, and it would be it would be pandemonium. And um, and again, the point is is that that there's nothing inherently moral. There's no moral justification to have red means stop, but there is a moral justification for not changing the system. Where red means stop, because the consequences of it would be bloody and dangerous. And that kind of thing is true for all sorts of moral norms and customs, is that you need a really good reason to overturn a tradition. You need a really, I'm not gonna get into Chesterton's fence. You need a really good reason to overrule a custom because there's path dependence, and you don't know what other things in life are depending upon those customs and those norms, and simply saying, well, they don't work for me individually. I'm smarter than this. So I get to make the decision on my own. Um, that at almost every scale is a very sort of radical or progressive way of, of looking at the world. And this is one of the things that so depresses me about the current state of what people call conservatism is that that thinking that, you know, rules are for suckers. We don't need to respect the rules. We don't need to respect the institutions. Um, We don't need to respect the way things have been done, Um, you know, for whatever reason because we want to keep Trump in power or because the other side doesn't respect them. And so therefore we don't have to either. That's just simply among the most unconservative ways of thinking about the world um, imaginable. The whole point of being a conservative is being reluctant to let go. Of norms and customs, and never mind the rule of law and the constitution, um, simply based upon your own personal desires and whims, and um, and you know, so I'm going to end on this because it's just such a remnanty note. Um, in a weird way, the people who res- who actually respect the rule of law, the constitution, um, tradition, um they're really the only sort of conservatives rightly understood left and they're not all Republicans. And some of them are Democrats. Some of them are in fact pretty liberal. Um, and, uh, they may not be able to see past, you know, their team jerseys in some circumstances, but that's the real, you know, that's the real remnant that I try to talk to. Um, when I think about trying to talk to them, it's not like every time I turn on this microphone, I'm like, I shall address the remnant today. Um, But uh, there it is. I got to go figure out what to write for a G file now. Um, Apologies for the rambling. Um, I know for some it's a bug, but for others it's a feature. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Sorry, brain farting again.